ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere to $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or the podcast website seansrussiablog.org and click on the Patreon donate button and join the table of ranks. The city of Moscow has an ambitious plan to demolish 4,500 apartment buildings, dislocate hundreds of thousands of Moscovites, and then rebuild new high-rise apartments in exchange for the old ones. The plan is to offer these residents new apartments equivalent to their old apartments. But as my guest Maxim Trudelubov explains, this Soviet-style mega-project has enormous risks attached to it. Residents question whether their property rights will be fulfilled and if they'll get apartments equivalent to their old ones. Max explains the whole issue around the apartment demolition controversy. And since I had him, I also asked Max about his views on a bunch of other issues concerning Russian politics. Max Trudelubov is a senior fellow at the Kennan Institute and the editor-at-large of Vedomosti, one of Russia's most important dailies. He was the editorial page editor of Vedomosti between 2003 and 2015 and has been a contributing opinion writer for the International New York Times since the fall of 2013. He also writes the Russia File blog for the Kennan Institute. Maxime is the co-author of the Roots of Russia's War in Ukraine, and his new book, The Tragedy of Property, Private Life, Ownership, and the Russian State, will be out soon. Here's Maxim Trudelubov. So one of the things you've been writing about recently is the plan by Moscow city authorities to demolish 10% of the city's housing and demand about 1.6 million people to relocate. So before getting into this issue directly, what is the historical background for urban housing in Moscow? Well, you see, this looks like a Soviet-scale project. It's, it's very huge. Uh, this is uh, how it used to happen in um, in Soviet during the Soviet times in Soviet cities, when uh, suddenly um, the government would start a building program, uh, build palaces, huge houses, uh, skyscrapers, and then at some point decide to build housing for everyone. So um, it's it's a top-down policy which is very common uh, in Russia and the Soviet Union. So and, and this this entire proposition, this entire idea does uh, does kind of it comes it comes back from the Soviet time, and um, you inevitably start thinking about it. Uh, more than that. It's it's kind of I think a, a wave of the very project that created these uh, buildings and these housing blocks. People live. It's by so by its very nature, it's kind of brings in this kind of solution because uh, these buildings they are aging and they're aging all at once. 
And uh, so they kind of beg a solution again at once. And there's no Soviet Union around. Uh, there's no, I mean, the current, today's Russia, the current Russia's economy simply cannot produce uh, an economic project of this scale. So it's just in itself contains a big, um, uh, probably unsolvable uh, problem. But Moscow can do it. Mos- Moscow can afford it. But this is, of course, these buildings were built all over the countries and cities, right? Because this was essentially a response to like the massive, I mean, Russia has had historically has had an urban housing crisis, but this is a response. Uh, these buildings were built in the late fifties and early sixties. And this was a response just by the mass homelessness also from the war and the destruction of, of a lot of urban space. Yes, of course. Just like, just like it was happening all over Europe and actually not just Europe, but um, it was uh, what they called in Europe emergency housing, actually. Uh, and it started after, immediately after the war in most of uh, Western and um, future Soviet bloc Europe. Uh, Russia was actually, I mean, the Soviet Union was actually behind um, uh, because um, it started, Stalin's idea apparently was that um, uh, the uh, reconstruction of of the destruction of all the losses of war had to start with something dramatic, with a show of sorts, uh, uh, of creating a new uh, image of a new um, power, a new um, a new pole on the on the world map, which was at the time after immediately after um, the war. Moscow became really one of the uh, two uh, poles of the newly created uh, universe, uh, political universe. So, and 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 this is why Stalin started with these um, uh, show-off kind of projects, building these skyscrapers, uh, continuing the project started before the war, the huge prospects starting from the center, uh, lined by these palace-like um, uh, residential buildings, which were beautiful and are beautiful, but they could not obviously solve uh, the housing issue. And <clears throat> the housing problem was actually solved all uh, by itself, as it often happens in, in Russia. When the government is not looking, people are doing. And um, uh, at that time, a lot of uh, th- there was a boom in individual uh, construction, individual building. P- people were just uh, finding um, little groups of workers, builders, who would, you know, just build them a house. And um, uh, the cities um, were reconstructing sort of by themselves. What the government was building was mainly building in the centers. It was, it, all cities were like a little copy of Moscow. In Moscow, they were mainly building these huge um, uh, huge palaces and um, some some normal houses as well, but nothing of the scale of uh, uh, this uh, uh, this construction along the Tverskaya, along, Tverskaya, along uh, uh, Kalininsky and the Kutuzovsky prospect, Kutuzovsky prospect, which became uh, 
sort of the main um, the the main government thoroughfare, the uh, the street that leads to <coughs> Stalin's dacha. So these were these were the, the first things that um, Stalin was doing immediately after the war. While in the West, uh, people were actually building these emergency houses. Now, the the other thing, though, about all of these these apartment buildings and also the Khrushchevki uh, after Stalin's death is that, you know, this is also part of the social contract of the with this between the Soviet state and the people because this is one of the first times that a lot of people actually got individual apartments as opposed to living in communal apartments. So my question is, and then of course, you know, after the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union, people began to privately own these apartments. So how is the, the state authorities now dealing with the issue of property rights and the fact that people own these, these apartments now, as opposed to before when they were essentially the states? Well, uh, yes, this was uh, an enormous change in everybody's life. Uh, it was, um, I like to think about it as a, as a collectivization in reverse, in the sense that, uh, in the sense that it concerned probably as many people as collectivization did. And it kind of returned some uh, space, some privacy and some uh, separate uh, space to millions and millions, uh, probably more than a hundred million people uh, by nineteen um, seventies. Uh, so it was what were they were taken, you know, they were they were uh, they were taken from. They 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 lost their plots of land and their uh, their rural life, and now they were all uh, living in the cities. And uh, they didn't have normal housing, and finally they had something uh, for them, for themselves. So this was a, this was incredibly significant. And <clears throat> to this day, uh, in every Russian family, you would have uh, the, the narrative, the story of the family, uh, almost necessarily includes this moment when, um, uh, and they tell it to their children now, grandchildren. Uh, you know, this is when we moved from this barrack uh, to this, you know, new and bright and sunny uh, Khrushchevka apartment, which looked and sounded beautifully. It was, uh, it was for many, many people. It was, um, it was incredible. And um, so, with time, this became property. Even before the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, it was it became property in all but name, basically. Of course, there were limitations, but if you look at property as a uh, bundle of rights, uh, I mean, this was a kind of a thin bundle, but it was still uh, a bundle, and uh, so people could um, basically people could inherit these, and um, and that was um, that was what was important. You couldn't buy many apartments, at least legally, but you could uh, give it to your children and um, and you couldn't be evicted, which is very important, because uh, until the 60s, you could actually be evicted from your housing if you lost your job or was fired. So it was the Stalinist practice, the Stalinist uh, approach to management uh, had, you know, this working and living were uh, a, a kind of a single concept. You were, you were giving, you, you were given your uh, housing by your employer, 
and that was very important. So you you, you had to provide your labor and uh, your employer, the state, in its various uh, uh, in its various forms, would give uh, give you a place to live. So so what uh, the revolution of uh, early Brezhnev was. Uh, was that uh, it became essentially property, and people started it kind of dissociated, decoupled from work. You could you could actually live there, and uh, and not necessarily work at the same uh, plant, at the same factory, uh, or something uh, with with your neighbors. And before that, it was very common. You know, people working at a um, steel plant lived together. So yes, it is, uh, and and um, the, the property today, property today is, um, I mean, it's a long story, but basically, we have this. Um, uh, and people own apartments, but they own, don't own land. In 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 ninety nine percent of of the cases, so it kind of creates a. a, 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 a it creates a, a difficulty. It creates a, a, a problem. So, uh, it, it, and it actually manifested itself during this uh, situation with uh, Moscow Rushovki, because um, uh, I will give the numbers. Actually, the numbers are now less than they were announced originally. So, uh, what uh, the mayor of Moscow, Sergei Sabyanin, what he said finally that after all the uh, 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 all the discussions and the voting, because the Moscow government held a voting for this, uh, 4,500 ho- houses, buildings, these uh, apartment blocks will be demolished, and um, some of them opted out, and the program will take roughly 15 years and will cost $3 trillion rubles, which is roughly, um, oh, I counted it in euros, 45 billion, 45 billion euros, which would mean uh, somewhere over um, 50, I think, um, billion dollars, which is huge. This is very, it's enormous. And uh, the question of property in this whole process is kind of outside of the picture, basically. Because if you, you know, if you're given a new uh, house, a new place, I mean, why would why would you reject it? But but to so in like in most most cases, people uh, roughly I don't know ninety percent of uh, of uh, of the people who live in these uh, apartments they voted uh, yes, uh, they said uh, yes, they wanted their new uh, apartments. But this essentially meant that they. Uh, Kind of, uh, so the, the issue of property is essentially bypassed by that. And, and, and people, people, people who decided to vote no, the, the minority, there, there is a number of houses that people decided they don't want, uh, that they would, you know, they don't want the, the demolition. So they actually managed to, to opt out, uh, but not many, about, uh, 6% of, of the houses. Um, yeah, so, so just, just just to wrap it up, I think that you see before this, before this, we had this picture we discussed it many times in in, in Russia that uh, private property on big things, big assets, especially what uh, Vladimir Putin calls uh, strategic enterprises, 
private property on these things like oil companies uh, or steel plants is uh, problematic. It's not actually real. It's kind of um, people who own uh, Nord Nickel, Nariski Nickel, for example, they, they, they own it on paper, but they have huge obligations and they don't, they cannot do much with, with this property. But people who own apartments own them for real. This was the kind of vision we had. Uh, and after this, um, after this program, when, after it was announced and, uh, and debated and, uh, and voted, uh, we actually realized that it's not that simple. So how, how would this process actually work? Um, because, you know, people's houses are going to be, I mean, I'm assuming they're going to demolish in stages and they're going to build in stages. So where do people go in the meantime? And do they, when you say that they get a new apartment, where is the new apartment? Is the new apartment in the new construction or is the new apartment somewhere else? It's an, it's a, it's a new, uh, a new apartment in a newly constructed, uh, um, apartment block. So the idea is, um, this is, uh, this is actually also debated and, I think that to this day there is no absolute certainty that uh, people will get uh, to get an apartment in a building that is in their own neighborhood. This is this was probably the biggest issue, actually, practical issue for most of those uh, who um, agreed to this program because most of them want to live in uh, in the neighborhood uh, or at least in the district where they live. Right now, it's kind of not clear because everything is in the hands of uh, the Moscow city government, and um, this 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 whole issue is not really. Um, I mean, you can you cannot really influence them. Uh, so uh, some people believe that they will get an apartment in a, a newly constructed uh, house in their own district, but in, not in every district you, you can easily construct a building. So there's a lot, a lot of issues to this day. But basically, technically, it looks like this, because Moscow did it before, uh, has done it before. Um, there is what they call a starting house. Uh, so they build a house first, then they relocate uh, relocate everyone, uh, then demolish. Uh, and usually they build a bigger house. So basically, uh, one issue which is, um, kind of an, an issue of urban design and Moscow's future is, of course, how these houses would, what they would be. And, uh, the understanding is that the, uh, that Moscow will build, uh, about three times as much of um, living space uh, instead of the demolished buildings because because they need to uh, they need uh, the program to pay for itself and uh, this would be done through selling the excess apartments on the open market so I can on the one hand I can see why an apartment resident and owner would see this as a potential ad advantage because 
once the, if the EU indeed receive one of these newly constructed apartments, the property value will be that much greater than your old Khrushchev, you know, apartment. Um, but at the same time, there's enormous amount of risk because, you know, the way things work in Russia is, is these kind of property rights, as you said, are kind of not well, they're not very concrete. Um, and people could lose a lot. Um, so my question is, is that, you know, the thing that comes to mind too is, of course, uh, real estate development and, and construction developers. How much kind of, uh, pull and, and influence they have in, in this project at this stage? Oh, a lot. Uh, this is, um, this is their project, essentially. Uh, this is, uh, M- Moscow is a huge, um, it's kind of it's it's like a company essentially, into which is which is how today's Russia functions. It's uh, uh, it's a huge construction conglomerate, and uh, Moscow government actually owns or runs owns and runs uh, a huge construction uh, company, which will be building. Uh, the houses, these new houses at the initial stage of, of the project. So the private, private developers, uh, will only get there, uh, at some later stage and, um, it, it's actually unknown at what stage. So this is, they, they will build it, they will sell it, uh, they will, uh, they will manage it. And I mean, the figures are enormous. Um, so w- what about the politics behind this? I mean, what is the, what is the political context for taking on such a huge project? Um, and, you know, that, I mean, what kind of, what are the political dimensions of, of this mega project? It's, uh, it's essentially, it's about creating a new space. Uh, Moscow is very important. Moscow is the, the, Russia's, uh, Testing ground, ground for for everything, and and also Moscow is uh, as a so socially uh, uh, Moscow is um, is is different from the rest of Russia. People have people are more demanding, people are better off, and uh, so the whole point was um, um, to try and keep Muscovites. Happy, I think, uh, in, in, in a very broad sense. And it actually started with this huge renovation program that is now underway in Moscow for the past three years, um, which is, uh, w- w- was the starting stage, uh, of this. It's, it's actually all started after 2011 when, uh, when, uh, um, uh, there were protests mainly in Moscow. Political protests immediately after the it was it became clear that uh, Vladimir Putin was returning as president and um, uh, they were thinking what to do and one of the things they were they started was uh, recreating uh, Moscow's urban space starting with um, public parks and then the streets and um, this by now it turned into a huge enormous. Project um, um, when within the Garden Ring, this, the, the the road that uh, creates Moscow's center, which is large, actually it's a large space. It's not it's not a small space. Um, 
It's um, almost every street within this huge space has by now been renovated. It's changed, you know, the, the, the road itself, the sidewalks, uh, the lighting, the, uh, the, the walls of the buildings, uh, new cafes, um, new spaces, public spaces. It's enormous. It's, uh, I can hardly compare it to anything. Actually, uh, I haven't seen it, anything like it anywhere. Where's the labor coming from from all of this? Because this is clearly a huge labor project as well. I mean, a lot of people are getting employment and to do this. These are all uh, what they used to call in Germany guest workers. So these are people mostly from um, southern uh, states coming from um, Central Asia, uh, uh, yeah, mostly, mostly Central Central Asia, to, uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, these these countries. Uh, so the the uh, the Moscow government owns most of the companies it uses. But actually, in this project, it's called it has a name. The program it's called My Street. So My Street project has um, a lot of private companies working for them as well. And uh, they actually employ good architects. So this is kind of a very interesting project because um, I think Sabanian, uh, the mayor, uh, Sabanian uh, kind of invested in the idea that um, you, you don't just do it, you know, to, to, uh, to create some, uh, you know, to, to make impressions. It, it's kind of, it, it, it has... It has become serious, I think. Uh, it started poorly. The quality was poor, and uh, Moscovites started to complain. And um, and by now, it, it's really like like they really employ people from all over the world. Uh, there is a huge uh, architecture firm um, called Strelka, which employs other architecture firms to to do, and they're kind of all very trendy, hip. Uh, Young, young architects. So all of this is kind of, it's all, uh, Moscow is very conflicting and strange place because of that, because you have, uh, this political regime that can afford to do it and can concentrate enough resources to produce a program of this scale, you know, like repaving all roads uh, within the city center at the same time. Right, it's extraordinary. Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's it's crazy. And um, uh, so you have this regime who can, that can afford it, but then you have the people who do who actually do it and draw uh, the plans on the drawing boards, and, and they're all uh, you know hipsters. They're all these, these really cool, trendy people. Right. I mean, in in a way, it is, you know, reflecting back on how you started about being like, uh, you know, similar to a giant Soviet uh, mega project, you know, in many ways, that is the model of the Soviet project in, you know, in the, the, the many facelifts that Moscow has experienced in the last 100 years, it indeed, you know, employed a lot of labor mobilize the population, but also co-opted or included the kind of cultural, uh, technical uh, um, experts into that construction as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and this creates a very interesting environment in Moscow. So when you, when you, um, when you come to Moscow, especially when you know where to go, 
um, to uh, you would find incredibly trendy um, media projects. Um, some consulting companies that work in office environment that is, you know, I don't think I've seen anything like as, let's say, as fashionable as this in, um, I don't know, Berlin or uh, London. It's kind of really, really cool. Uh, and um, cafes, um, trend people are dressed uh, in a kind of... Um, so they think about how they dress. Uh, this is this is uh, this is the impression you get uh, when walking uh, about Moscow these days, especially now when the most of the active construction work is is finished. A lot of it is still ongoing, but they managed to do a lot of it by this um, by early September. But but you cannot you know you can't help thinking about the rest of the country, of course. Of course, because this, as, as you know, a lot of these this construction of a lot of these buildings that they're planning to demolish and, and refurbish and stuff, they're all they're in every urban center in the country, and they, you know, those places do not have the resources or even the political pull to to gather those resources to engage in such a project. Totally, yes, and um, in, uh, my guess is that in most other places in Russia. You would uh, have to think about these uh, issues in a very different way. Uh, like probably, like it was actually happening for the past uh, years in um, in the in the Baltic countries and uh, and in uh, Eastern European countries. In some of the cities, there uh, the percentage, the share of this Soviet emergency housing, these uh, Khrushchevskas, is is actually very large. Or similar, or similar apartment blocks. Well, since I have you, I want to also talk about some other things. Uh, since you you comment, yeah, you comment on so many aspects of, of Russian politics, and and also you you know, were formerly um, one of the main editors of the of the very prestigious uh, Russian Daily Vietnamisty. So first, I want to ask you about um, how you evaluate the Russian media because here in the United States, we we hear a lot of things about mostly negative about the Russian media. But in my opinion, when you look at the print press, uh, you see a lot of great work going on um, in, you know, in very difficult, difficult conditions. So how do you understand the Russian media and particularly when it when it tries to when it has to cover such controversial issues like this, this housing issue? Uh, Russian media is highly diverse, which is, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of not obvious, uh, but it. It is. Um, of course, the bulk of it, a huge, uh, enormous piece of um, the of this industry, is owned or run by uh, by the Kremlin in uh, in various shapes and forms. Uh, and this means that basically um, a lot of it is um, propaganda style, um, or it's. You know, especially television, these huge federal, federal channels that cover uh, most of um, uh, Russia's territory. They are, of course, they're very strange beasts. It's, um, it's. I don't know. You know, to to compare, probably it would be something. It would be like Fox News on on steroids, because it's 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 very right wing. Uh, it and politically, politically, it's very right wing. 
but also it has a lot of shows, and shows are kind of loud and weird. Um, so, and this is like a lot of this, a lot of this. This is basic. This basically creates the uh, the environment and the backdrop against which little tiny uh, players like us and like myself we exist somewhere in the corners. But we are actually, but we actually exist. So, uh, and this itself, it, 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 it's kind of in itself. It's um, um, uh, it, it's. You know, it's something. It means that uh, it's actually possible. It's probably the only thing we can say at this point. I think is that actually uh, independent uh, journalism in Russia is possible, uh, and it exists. Uh, uh, a lot of it is concentrated in Moscow, uh, but not just in Moscow. Um, so Moscow is, is, as always, is, is kind of a microcosm, and uh, what is happening in Moscow then. Uh, Repeats uh, in uh, other places in smaller, uh, smaller scale, but yeah, Moscow has a number of outlets that um, are, uh, you know, just like anywhere else. Uh, 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 the newspaper I've worked for for many, many years, Vedomosti, and was part of the founding, launching team. Um, it was it used to be owned by the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, and we were introducing the kind of Reporting standards that um, I think were commensurate with with those of uh, the Wall Street Journal, and and it's still ongoing. So I mean, the standards of reporting about business actually uh, are mm, are tolerable, are actually good, and, and not just at in, in Vietnamese, but in many other places. So it kind of exists, yeah. Right, and. Uh a question I have too is also about what what function um, newspapers like Vietnamese, Commerçant, uh, you know the the big serious ones, um, how they play in Russian politics. Because I'm assuming that a lot of the Russian elite and certainly the business elite are consuming these newspapers for a lot of information and reporting, but also kind of political debate and things like this. So what is the relationship be between these more um, prestigious professional newspapers to, say, the power structure as, as part of a, a, a participant in, in, in the power structure in Russia? Well, basically, the readership, the readership of this, of the quality, uh, press, uh, that we have, the readership includes all of the Kremlin's, uh, main actors and, uh, the advisors and, uh, the Duma deputies and, uh, the big businesses. So, essentially, the elites. So, um, things like Vedomosti Commerçant, uh, Republic.ru, also an important news and opinion uh, platform. They, I think, have Russia's best audiences because it kind of combines both those who uh, make political decisions and those who don't make any political decisions and, uh, and consider, them, consider themselves politically uh, disenfranchised, essentially. Many a large part of Russia's elite feels uh, unrepresented um, at, at, at the government level, but they kind of symbolically meet as um, as this big readers' club of 
Vietnamese uh, and uh, Commerçant and Republic probably. Yeah, and in many respects, it reminds me of the the, the Tsarist newspapers. Um, you know, before kind of these uh, like these Muscovy Vietnamese, you know, these oblast newspapers of the late Tsarist period, they kind of function in in a similar way. It seems to me. Right, actually, I mean, yes, I think you are right. Yes, um, and and it, it, all in all, if you think of it, I don't think there is somebody who's uh, you know designing this. I don't think there's a grand design behind all of this. It. it was just happening, uh, but uh, it kind of makes sense uh, from this point of the mm, uh, grand vision of uh, a, uh, a an authoritarian leader who runs a big. A big country, and that, that from the point of of this leader is not ready for democracy. So you know you have to give you know the masses you know these huge television uh, uh, this enormous television content that is you know supposed to entertain them, and then you have to maintain some level of uh, you know civilized discussion with uh, with your uh, political opponents who are nowhere to be seen, but uh, publicly, but they actually exist. <laughs> so you have to, you have to, you, you have to keep them entertained as well, entertained uh, too. Now, in a recent column in the Moscow Times, which you also write for, or um, some of your stuff is is republished there, you made a really interesting observation in the context about Russia's recent uh, municipal and gubernatorial elections, and you write that. This is Putin's plan because legality is one of his favorite concepts. But what matters is not who is behind it, but the strategy. What matters is that the Russian people never see behind the curtain and realize how weak and artificial the entire political structure is. The strategy is to make a show of the of following the rules and of holding elections so that if challenged by a rogue dissident, leaders can honestly say, yes, we observed the law. Now, talk about this issue of law and legality, because this is indeed something that Putin talks about a lot. He constantly refers about following the law, implementing the law. Talk So talk about this role in, in the Putin system, and, and what is its relationship to what you call behind the curtain and the weakness and artificiality of, of Russia's political structures? Right. You see... Uh... Putin indeed uh, loves things to be uh, legal and lawful, and uh, somehow this concept is is very different uh, from what uh, they call rule of law in the West. It's um, it's something else, and uh, uh, Putin has been incredibly active in shaping and reshaping and rewriting Russia's legislation since day one. And um, by now, I mean, if we take elections, because we just had these elections throughout Russia, not just in Moscow, and um, the uh, legal, the, the, the rules, the, the legislation that uh, regulates elections been rewrite, uh, written, um, I think I, I had a figure somewhere, but it doesn't and doesn't of uh, uh, times since uh, Putin's uh, early uh, uh, time, and by now, uh, there's a, it's it's also a well-known fact that um, no single election, uh, every single election in in Russia is is conducted under a new set of rules. 
it, they, they never repeat. Uh, because there's a new conception, there's a new idea, then they, you know, they, between the elections, they um, uh, rubber stamp uh, a new, uh, uh, some new legislation, and then the next election is, is kind of different. Um, so you can hardly prepare for this or plan. And, um, but still, it's legal, of course, obviously, because there is a law and the law is observed and uh, the system is very strict about observing it. But um, the thing is, of course, that um, these, um, the laws, are, um, I mean, if you, you as part of the elite and the, the, uh, the select uh, club of people who own huge assets or are part of the political system, they are not expected to, you know, play by, by the rules. The rules are for lower levels of, of the system. And um, so technically, in many cases, for example, like just, just like this election um, last uh, Sunday, uh, you can actually, if you prepare it well, from the, if you are the Kremlin, you the Kremlin. I, um, if the Kremlin prepares it well and has all the right candidates running, then you actually, you don't need any, uh, tricks. You don't have to, you don't have to rig it. And this is actually the idea. So that, uh, I think this last Sunday was an example of how it should be. It kind of almost uh, a certain approximation to some ideal, uh, vision that uh, Putin has is that you basically you hold the elections everybody's happy everything's according to uh, the law and the right person is elected so it's both it's it's both legal and um and you need so basically you combine you know the authoritarian logic of appointing the right person with the electoral logic which is basically, and then you get the, you know, electoral, uh, electoral autocracy, which probably describes Russia's system. And, and what, why, what is the relationship between this and, and the weakness of, of its, if, of its political structures? Well, the weakness is in the sense that, uh, you see, it's, um, it's, uh, it depends on this one person, so it's highly personalized. It changes all the time. It, um, it always behaves as if it feels highly insecure. So uh, my understanding of things like, you know, the annexation of Crimea uh, um, uh, and the Ukrainian war are basically this over over reaction to threats that uh, the Kremlin partly invents and partly sees and then uh, then they are enlarged and it, it becomes uh, it, it, they start to see it as existential and they react to things that may just be uh, mistakes or you know blips or you know changes in, in the outside environment they react to these things as if um, that would, you know, it's like a mortal combat and, the, and, and an ultimate challenge. So, yeah, so this is, is kind of the system that is highly insecure uh, inside, uh, inter- internally. And it, it, um, this this what I mean. This is what I mean. So it's, it, it's kind of, it understands, it, 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 it thinks about itself in these terms, I think, because 
they themselves know uh, that you know a lot of it depends on some personal relationship. There's a lot. There's a lot of uh, what you know an outside observer would call corruption, and they themselves don't call it corruption because it's relationships. They, they, this is how it works. Uh, but they know that it's uh, it's corruption, and they, they also know that if things change politically. In what way? I don't know. But if uh, if if there is a change, uh, everyone will be in trouble. All of the elites, they will be in trouble because uh, the next uh, government or some kind of next political situation will see this period uh, through the lens of um, of. Um, you know, corruption. They would uh, they would look at this and say, yeah, this is this is you know why why you own this and why you own this and where's your money and everything, um, and um, and they don't. So they they have to cement their position, but uh, also make sure that it's all. Um, uh, covered in the sense of it's legal. Right, right. Yeah, this is the the kind of various contradictions that I see as well. Um, I think speaks to a lot of this. On the one hand, law, as you said, it's not the rule of law. It's not about securing rights. It's procedural, right? It's it's purely about, you know, the procedure has to go a certain way according to the law. Um, and but But by doing this and by constantly tinkering with the law and changing it and then also you you're you're abetting the deinstitutionalization of of the system which is based on these relationships and i think because there are no strong institutional filters the threat perception is only increased that much more um and then also it contributes to a, a fact that because it's so personalized because of the th- of threat perception it leads to another thing that i always think about and that is the tendency of the elite to kind of cannibalize itself in moments of crisis and it seems that there's a, a constant effort to maintain you know the the system as is because if you let it leak as you say behind allow the cur- people to see what's behind the curtain the fragility of it just kind of crumbles Exactly, exactly. I think you're right. It's, uh, once, uh, once everybody, uh, understands that these are, you know, just some loose relationships between, you know, a number of groups of very greedy people, uh, people will just, will just say, wow. <laughs> but so my, my impression actually is that, you see, many in Russia understand that, um, that, that, everything about the greedy people uh, at the top but they have this they, they have their reservations about violent change and um, and I think a lot of this contributes to to the fact that Russia is actually politically quite stable well, at least right now um, I think it's a conscious uh, conscious uh, decision um, not to, not to, you know, not to shake the boat, uh, not to rock the boat. And, um, yeah, also patriotism, also, also, also patriotism. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about like mass media and television providing a lot of theater. I mean, these political shows are almost like sports events in many respects. 
And but at the same time, another kind of form of theater that's that's happening in Russia is is there's a culture war. Um, I, I don't know what else to call it. And and in two places that we've seen it recently manifest is um, the conservative reaction to this film Matilda, which dramatizes Nicholas II's affair with um, the ballerina Matilda Kishinskaya. And then the recent arrest of the film and theater director Kirill Serebrennikov. Uh, so what is, what is this culture war all about and these kind of periodic flare-ups of kind of, you know, er, you know, tapping down on this cultural institution or in this case arresting an important cultural figure or kind of this, you know, manufactured outcry about a film? Uh, how do you understand this? Yeah, you see, this is actually very interesting. And um, it's, it, it, it's really unpleasant when you are in Russia. <laughs> Because, uh, but when you analyze it and look at it, it's actually very interesting because I think it's, uh, this conservative project is, um, is a, is an artificial top-down project, uh, like many things in Russia. It's, um, because Russia actually is a highly modernized uh, society, uh, because of the Soviet past. It's, uh, highly urbanized, um, it's small families, nuclear families. Um, a lot of, you know, people divorce, people marry and remarry. So there's, you know, traditional values are nowhere to be seen. Yeah. And, and on television too, all these shows on television, these dramas and comedies, I mean, nothing about them are, you know, conservative values. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, uh, American society is a lot, even today is a lot more conservative and traditional than Russia. Uh, and actually, if you look at the figures, uh, you know, the share of people who go to churches, really, uh, uh, it's, it's tiny. It's, you know, depending on where you, you, which, uh, how you ask the questions, uh, or how you study this, but it's, it's like 2%, 3% of active believers, um, as opposed to the United States, which is, you know, still a, well, significant, uh, significant uh, part of the uh, society is, uh, you know, defines, uh, identifies as religious. Uh, and, and, and so Russia is, is a modernized country, but um, politics, so the decision was made, and I don't know, maybe it's Putin, maybe it's his advisors, but uh, the Kremlin uh, loves to be seen as conservative and they 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 uh, love to be seen as um pr- the protectors and holders of some uh, conservative uh, values and uh, to do that they've essentially they are developing a, a, a developing this project in a top down fashion so they they sort of they try and you know this is why the church is uh, is so close to uh, the the russian orthodox church is so close to um, Moscow's uh, government and um, the Kremlin. This is the reason. Uh, and um, so they gradually, step by step, working with the, you know, with schools, with uh, artistic community, they try to influence and gradually, you know, build uh, some, uh, some, you know, resemblance of, uh, of a functioning conservative. Um, well, society, at least part of Russia's, uh, society. But then these, the, the, this program, this conservative, Putin's conservative program, 
then it creates um, all kinds of uh, unintended consequences. And uh, uh, and one the cases that you mentioned are actually essentially are are these kind of um, these kinds of um, consequences because. I'm I'm sure that nobody uh, from the Kremlin, you know, told this woman, uh, uh, former prosecutor from Crimea, Paklonskaya, who's now an MP, a member of uh, the Duma, and nobody told her specifically to attack this poor guy who who did this film about Tsar uh, Nicholas II. Yeah, I think it's just her initiative. But then some organizations created by the Kremlin, you know, picked it up, started to amplify, and by now it's a huge, enormous, uh, yeah, it does, it does resemble a culture war. But the difference, I think, from an American uh, culture war would be that actually Russia's population in general, if, if, you know, if you let people live and, you know, do their thing, they would be, you know, just like people in the Netherlands. Actually, uh, uh, in all but name, they are, you know, pretty liberal. But uh, they, uh, the government, the Kremlin, wants them to think about themselves as as highly conservative, which which is ironic. But this is how I feel it. This is how I see. It. And it's actually it's very interesting to see how far it could go, how far you could. You know, developing from top down, how far you can, uh, can you really turn it into a sort of a Iran-like uh, theocratic regime? I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think so, but you know, there are people who think so in Russia. So this week in, in Commerçant, Commerçant reported that uh, Putin will likely announce his bid for re-election in 2018 in this November. And of course, no one will be surprised by this. But at the same time, there's a lot of chatter in the Russian press about life after Putin. And in a recent article in, in Republic.ru, Tatiana Stanovaya uh, argued that we're seeing the birth of a post-Putin Russia. So what are your thoughts on the current configuration of uh, Russian domestic politics as it moves forward? Well, it's um, yes, it's really overshadowed by the looming figure of um, Vladimir Putin. So it's actually difficult to analyze it because of this. It kind of crystallizes uh, around his presence. Uh, but uh, there is a certain degree, a certain degree of uh, you know institutional institutionalization uh, of of this system. Which is very different from what you have in um, most Western countries, but still, you know, to a degree, uh, it it kind of probably can stand on its own uh, feet, I think. But for how long is, of course, anybody's guess, and um, it 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 really depends on um, on um, on how these people would uh, be the the people around Putin would uh, probably start a kind of a war between themselves immediately. Um, how they would, uh, I mean, how wise they are, would they find a, a way of, I think this is crucial, would they find a way of uh, cooperation and uh, would the kind of the overall value of stability, which is probably Russia's 
uh, it's, it's the main mantra of the regime. It's kind of the main value, stability. So whether they will be able to preserve it, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, this is one of the another kind of thing that uh, I'm always kind of thinking about is why in Russia they haven't developed something like the Chinese system in a sense of you know, having an institutionalized transfer of power that may, you know, you know, change a couple of chairs, but really maintain elite cohesion and elite, elite ability to profit and even engage in corruption, why they haven't come to some sort of, you know, class compromise, for lack of a better term. Right. Very good question, Sean. I've been thinking about it endlessly. But you see, whenever you talk to people uh, who are close to the Kremlin, the you know they they look at you like you are you know a madman or you know they look at you and like what create what because you see they don't think in these terms the Chinese probably do think in these terms because they're, they're kind of they're strategic but these guys they think about very different things they're always at work uh, on um, putting out some Current fire. They basically they live in a in a, in a situation of of, of an existential um, threat constantly looming over, and it manifests itself in 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 many things. Uh, it could be an election in a neighboring country. It could be uh, uh, some natural disaster. It could be a protest movement, but. And they always, they are always reacting. Um, so there is no, um, real architecture. There's no, there's, and there's no architecture. I don't think uh, Vladimir Putin is an architect, really. He is, uh, he's a highly, um, uh, gifted, uh, leader and, um, and a political animal in the best sense of, of, of the word. Uh, but he is not, uh, you know, a builder of uh, of, a, of a system. I don't think he's like, you know, who can compare him to. But he is. He definitely not is not like like um, you know, Den in 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 China. You know, Den Den. So he's is uh, he is very clever, but he is always solving something that's at hand uh, that's at hand at the moment, and also. He's working with the material, so uh, as it were, that is that he has. He he is a realist. He do, he doesn't think that you know uh, he, you know I will create this and then we will have this system. No, uh, he just you know uh, there is this situation. Moscow is in protest. What what do we do about it? You know there is a number of options. Then choose. He, he looks at the options, choose, choose, chooses the option, and then, and then we go on. And then he goes and, you know, goes for a swim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, I mean, yeah, we could, we could talk endlessly, I think, about the, the kind of historical uh, patterns of, of Russian governance and how they seem to maintain certain characteristics throughout time. Uh, for a variety of, you know, speculative reasons. But, um, but let, let's talk about, uh, in lieu of that, let's talk about one of those, uh, existential threats that they perceive and deal with right now. And that is by the, by, by most accounts, Russia and Russian and U.S. Re- relations are at a very, very low point. 
And as someone like yourself who has kind of a foot here in the U.S. with with the Kennan Center, but also in Russia, of course, how do you understand the conflict between the United States and Russia? And um, and most importantly, what do you think could be done to de-escalate the situation? Yeah, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think it's uh, I think it's a huge uh, underlying. This is a huge foreign policy failure on the part of. Uh, well, basically Vladimir Putin and, uh, and his, uh, system. Because the idea was to try and get, uh, and lift the sanctions. And, uh, and, um, uh, the way they were doing this, uh, whatever the extent of the, in, uh, of, of, uh, Russia's meddling, so-called meddling with uh, the U.S. election, I don't know it, and I, I, I kind of prefer to be an agnostic in the sense of I haven't seen uh, the actual, you know, case, and uh, I understand that very few people have, uh, of course, access to classified information, etc. But uh, uh, of course, uh, there, there was something. Something was there. There was some kind of attempts to to do um, to achieve something. It was, I'm almost sure, I'm almost 100% sure, this comes from my conversations with uh, various people at various levels of uh, Russia's um, politics, uh, that there was no plan to install Donald Trump in the White House. Definitely, it was not that. Uh, they were, uh, Putin was upset with Hillary. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, Putin may have theoretically say at some point to some of the people who constantly, you know, come and, um, offer him some project, projects. Let's, let's call it like this. And th- this could be a project of, uh, trying and ha- to try and hack some of the computers, um, and Putin may have theoretically uh, say, okay, why, why, why not? Well, well let's just try it. Uh, let's see what happens. So, but again, there was no architecture, and I haven't heard from anyone. I've, I don't know a single person who would say, yes, I mean, you know, you know off the record would say, you know, actually, Max, Sure, we we did this and we, we were trying to do this. Uh, yeah, kind of. We're not really happy about how it turned out, but no, they just don't. They because there were no project. Yeah, it's they, it's it's. If I could say, if I could interrupt, you know, it's almost like. Um, and I was thinking about this a few days ago when BuzzFeed came out with this story about this uh, document that the Russians gave to the Trump administration, outlining you know pretty much a, a plan for a rapprochement and a normalization of relations. It's almost like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. In many respects, right? You know, it's clear that they didn't expect Trump to win. Um, but then th- when he won, they're like, okay, here's an opportunity for us to take for reproachment. But they don't under- seem to understand the gravity of the first action of, of you know, whatever the, the level of meddling, you know, to, okay, you know, that's over now. Let's move on. It, it's, it's a really strange kind of split personality. Totally. And, and this is very characteristic. It's because, yes, uh, the political system is, is, is a one-man show, but there are many, many people behind him, and there are many people who come, you know, they come up with various projects. And even in foreign policy, I mean, the, the, uh, these Russia's sort of famous contacts with the European um, hard right are, are, are this kind of thing. It's 
there's no plan, no strategy. Some context, yes. Putin would always make a show of he would, you know, meet with uh, Marine Le Pen to, to just to demonstrate that you guys basically this is a message to Americans, of course, and probably personally to Mike McFaul, saying that uh, to you know you you came to Russia as an ambassador and uh, you know immediately met with um, uh, my uh, you know. Uh, my opposition. Okay, here, here we go. I will meet with opposition figures gladly. Nice. So this is what it is. It's just uh, a lot of it is, of course, not public. This is this is a public gesture, but a lot of not public. And but it's it, it's motivated by this kind of thing. We want to we want to be seen as a great power. We are a great power, and we are doing what we please. So basically, and do you have any suggestions how this this situation could be de-escalated? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, coming back to this, uh, it's it it is a big uh, foreign policy failure, and um, uh, how to solve it? Because I mean, if smart diplomats, which are there on both sides, would be given a chance to work it out, I'm sure we could have easily done it. Because they're very smart people, on even in today's White House, I think, which is erratic and strange. But uh, Rex Tillerson makes you know, you know the impression of of a, of a, of, a, um, of a decent and uh, kind of smart and uh, thinking person who understands issues. Uh, so, uh, it could have been done, but, but of course, all these political feelings, and now when we have, san- when the sanctions are, uh, enshrined in, uh, uh, set in stone, essentially, as a law, uh, it's very difficult, and the current White House has, has very little leverage, obviously, because of this, because of the law, and essentially the Congress, uh, the Congress has, um, took over this part of, uh, uh White, uh, White House. Uh, politics and uh, I don't know I don't see a clear way out of it right now I think that just you know sitting down together and working on issues on uh, on some issues which uh, the one that comes to mind obviously is North Korea could probably produce uh, something and uh, one uh, example a relatively recent example of uh, fruitful cooperation is uh, the deal with Iran where it it just shows that it's possible. I mean, being realistic, we just we have to admit that uh, the relationship will uh, have to be will and is transactional between Russia and the United States. And uh, you know, just think about it as transactional. And if and if Donald Trump really were the kind of you know uh, artist of the deal. Uh, we actually probably would be in a better uh, in a better uh, situation right now, but uh, it seems to me that he actually is not a great sister of the deal. And um, well, and Putin is also. I mean, and Putin is reluctant, you know, to make big moves, and uh, he enjoys uh, the um, uh, he enjoys the kind of situation because it it benefits him. It benefits him as a politician. Uh, greatly. It doesn't benefit Russia, as very often is the case. Russian society is not a winner in this situation, but the Russian political system is. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, going back to what you said about Russian being Russia being a very modernized society, it's very plugged into global uh, economic and cultural trends. You know, any kind of uh, foreign policy or geopolitical situation that seeks to pull that you know, pull Russia out of there or even being isolated from that just doesn't benefit Russian society at all. So, and finally, um, you know, as we move into Russia's presidential election season, uh, what are some of the things you'll be paying attention to concerning Russia's domestic and international politics? Well, it's, of course, I mean, as always in Russia, the the game is about uh, everybody will be watching who Putin will be choosing, who will be his who will be seen to be his key uh, advisors, assistants in this uh, upcoming presidential campaign. Uh, rumors say that he will announce his campaign uh, in November. And, um, well, uh, a lot will be depend on the kind of strategy they will choose because, again, fundamentally there's this. Uh, in a sophisticated electoral uh, autocracy, uh, you have to be careful with elections because this is where your system is going through uh, going through turbulence, and um, you have to get a predictable result because this is what your system is all about. But at the same time, it has to be legitimate. This is this is eternal, perennial um, issue of um, authoritarian systems. That yes, Putin will make a decision of a certain kind. That I don't know. Maybe he will. I don't know. I don't even want to guess. But he makes he makes a certain decision, and then they will have to make sure that it. It plays, uh, it plays out exactly the way, uh, it's, it's, you know, needed. So that there is an election, the people actually come and vote because it won't work just like this Sunday when the turnout was 15 to 20 percent in, in most regions, like really, really ridiculously low. And, um, they cannot afford this because, um, Vladimir Putin is Russia's national leader and it would wouldn't look good if uh you have you know a 20 percent turnout you have you need a solid solid turnout uh and again with this so good turnout you need a vote that you need so you, you need to construct the this whole electoral um uh, this whole electoral procedure an election resembling um the procedure uh, so, so that it, it's both legal, which is again, coming back to this, uh, so according to the rules and everything is clean, but also, you know, managed, managed, managed. So this is the big, the big, uh, the big, um, uh, uh the, the big question that is now being, I'm sure, uh, debated and decided in the Kremlin. That was Maxine Trudelubov, a senior fellow at the Kennan Institute and the editor-at-large for Vietnamisti, one of Russia's most important dailies. Maxime is the co-author of The Roots of Russia's War in Ukraine and his new book, The Tragedy of Property, 
Private Life, Ownership, and the Russian State will be out soon. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!